You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Before we read this morning, would you like to... We're reading now from God's Word, uh, Matthew chapter 7, and we're starting at verse 7. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. And this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Second last week, next week's going to be our final week in the Sermon on the Mount. We started in March, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the beginning of March and we've been making our way through this sublime sermon ever since. Took a little break for Easter, a little break here and there, but essentially been working our way through this incredible sermon. It's taken us I don't know, it'll take us 20 weeks or something. It could take us 20 years, really. Just the depths of the riches of this sermon of Jesus is just phenomenal. Really is phenomenal. And you can see that, by the way, that it has essentially shaped our civilization uh, ever since it was spoken. So it's going to be sad, really, coming to the end of it next week. But in some ways, it'll be a relief. I know that um, most of us have felt a little bit... I think the Christian word is convicted. Um, the slang term would be like smash in the face by this sermon. Jesus pulls no punches. And um, yeah, I found that even though I'm very familiar with this sermon, I've read it a hundred times, and you know, as even just a member of the Western civilization, I'm familiar with some of the better known phrases of the sermon, I've still found it to be shocking as we've worked through this. The other day on Monday, I, uh, you guys know by now this is all I do, all right? So I don't have to preface um, these stories anymore. But Monday, my kids had the day off, and so we went hiking together. And um, on a trail that I've been over hundreds, hundreds of times, just could do it in my sleep. Um, and so I, I had had a pretty bad night's sleep, and uh, the kids were home from, on, a, on a day off, so I said, let's just get out there and we can stumble our way through. And I was um, kind of not very present uh, as we were just making our way through one of these gorges. And uh, one of the first things, you know, if you have kids and you go hiking at all, one of the first things they have to do is it's almost mandatory. They've got to choose their stick that they um, 
walk, walk with, hit each other with, you know, attack trees with. And India had a good, thick, strong walking stick, but it was too long, so I put it down on a piece of rock and cracked it with my foot to snap it, and it came straight up and knocked me in the face. I just... Whoosh, and um, it had been about 20 years since I got punched in the face really, really good, and I recommend it every now and then, maybe every decade or so, just because it's just... It reminds you... Um, how much it hurts <laughs> to get punched in the face. Um, my whole mouth immediately just exploded blood and, um, and blew up. Uh, that night at parish council, everyone could see. I looked like a Kardashian. I was just like... <laughs> and um, That's how I felt about this whole sermon series, really. I mean, I, just, I expected to be walking through something that I've done a thousand times, read a thousand times, very familiar with, and it just has kept smacking me in the face. I don't know if that's been your experience as well, but Jesus is that kind of teacher. He says the kinds of things that God would say if God became man, which is convenient. We come to this passage this morning, and I'm happy to say, after getting whacked in the face a few times, really the the message from Jesus in this passage is one of comfort, one of encouragement, um, one of edification, and one of uh, giving us a vision of God as a good father who loves his children. God is a good daddy. He cherishes his kids. It's important that we understand that from the beginning. If we're going to know who God the Father is, if we're going to get the right picture that Jesus wants to paint of God, it's not just that God cares for us because he created us. It's not just that, that God made us so he's got to kind of keep us going. It's that he loves us. Like he actively cherishes us. He is like on the edge of his seat waiting to jump out and do stuff for us. He loves us. We're not just something to be maintained by him because we are creatures and he is creator. That's one vision of God that people have had. It's been quite popular in Western civilization. Actually, it's a deistic view of God. God spun the world into existence, and then he kind of went and did some other stuff. He's not really concerned with the goings-on of day-to-day humanity, and that is a profoundly false view of who God is. No, he's a good father. He's actively engaged in loving us, providing for us, protecting us. About this time last year, no, um, late spring last year, we started, you know, we were a bit late, but we were planting out our veggie patch. Hello. Planting out our veggie patch, and, um, and I went to Bunnings to buy all the, you know, seedlings and stuff, the veggies, and it was just so expensive, and I just, I am a little bit, I'm not like God the Father, I'm a little bit cheap. He's, he's abundantly generous. And I'm not so much. So anyway, I was like, I don't know about this. I think these guys are taking me for a ride. How about I just go and buy the stuff from the supermarket? We can eat it, and then I'll just plant the seeds, right? So that's what I did. And specifically tomatoes. I just bought a bunch of different tomatoes, and we made stuff out of the tomatoes. And I kept the seeds, and I kind of rinsed them off. And then I just planted them all. And it turns out that tomatoes 
um, don't need much encouragement to grow. We just ended up with an absolute, like, heaving pile of tomatoes in short order, just, just everywhere tomatoes. And for the rest of the summer, I kind of found myself obligated to take care of all of these tomatoes. Like, we had way too many tomatoes, but I couldn't just pull them out and throw them in the bin because I had planted them. Like, I was responsible for them. And, and so I spent the whole summer like, oh, I've got to water them again, wasting time. I've got to actually do something. I've got to make sauce or something out of these things. And it was just this sense of obligation because I planted them, so I had to take care of them. That's not who God is. You haven't just been planted by him and now he's got to, oh, I've got to water that plant in case it might die if I neglect it. No, he's, he's, you're his children. He's actively invested in your flourishing. Hasn't that been the whole point of Jesus' sermon? He wants to paint a picture for us of the flourishing life. He says in, what is it, John 10, 10? I think that's how I remember it. That he came to give life, to give it abundantly, to give us life to the full, to give us flourishing life. And that's the picture that Jesus paints through this sermon. And that's the kind of God he wants us to know, a God who's invested in our flourishing. A.W. Tozer, who's someone you might be familiar with from the last century, he said this thing that's really profound and um, well it's a big statement he said what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us so more important than whether you're married or single or a grandparent or whether you have children or what job you do or how fulfilling that job is how much money you get paid or what kind of car you own or any like whether you're pretty or handsome or anything else, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. That's a big statement. What comes to your mind? When I say God is your Father, what image does that conjure up? What is He like? If you're here this morning and you are going through a period, a season of grief or just tiredness or disappointment, then you might be tempted to think of God as this stingy father. Like maybe you're going through what you're going through because God is holding out on you. He's got all of these good gifts up in heaven, you know, he's got this whole big treasury of good stuff and he's pretty liberal in handing it out to other people but for you, he's just holding back. Maybe that's how you conceive of God in this season at this time. I know of a family where the father is like that. He has absolute iron-fisted control of the bank account and he ekes out just enough to, for his family to get by. Their experience of him is this father who's holding out on them. This father who's withholding from them. 
This Father who could bless them with good things but chooses not to. Is that your conception of God? Is that who God is to you? Well, Jesus knows the Father. Jesus knows the Father so well that he is willing to say things that would be blasphemous if they weren't true. Like in John 14, he says, one of his disciples says, show us the Father. And he says, how can you say that? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. (laughs) Jesus knows the Father better than anyone else. Jesus knows the Father, and he wants to show us the Father in this passage. He wants wants to paint a picture of what God is like. And so he begins, verse 7 and 8, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Ask, seek, Knock. All of these are metaphors for prayer. And they were used by rabbis of Jesus' day as metaphors for prayer. These are kind of well-known ways of speaking about prayer. Asking, seeking, knocking. Now there's a couple of ways that we can kind of get off track. Uh, It's not going to land us in heresy or anything probably, but it just gets us away from, I think, the the point that Jesus wants us uh, to get here. And that is, first of all, by trying to figure out what these different classifications of prayer are, asking, seeking, knocking, like there are whole kind of like articles written on the different kinds of prayer that Jesus is talking about and how you can do these different kinds of prayer. Don't bother with any of that. It's, he's not, he's not, he's not writing a textbook on prayer. He's, this is not a reference book on prayer. He's not classifying different kinds of prayer. He's just talking about prayer. These are the three metaphors. They all mean prayer. Nothing more complicated than that. Jesus likes to talk in threes. There's this rule of three. It's happened for all of history. We just like things in threes. I don't know why. We like the three billy goats gruff and the three bears and who's that girl? Goldilocks. <laughs> I don't know, we like things in threes. Jesus talks about the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. He just, he's into it, okay? So he's just saying, look, he's making an emphatic point about prayer in general. Ask, seek, knock, and be expectant that God responds to you. The other way you can get off track with this is to like take what he's, he's said and kind of try and make it this kind of ironclad guarantee stamp on all of your prayers. Like whatever you ask for, God is going to respond positively to. I went, I went to a Bible study once where the whole time we had this passage and we spent the whole time trying to figure out if this meant that everything we asked for we would get, which was a complete waste of time. Because, well, no. Obviously not. I mean, like, look at the context. Jesus has just given us the Lord's Prayer, and when it comes to asking for things, he's concerned with, like, basic needs. He wants, you know, he wants needs, not greeds. He wants you to ask for bread, not, I don't know, the Lamborghini I saw drive past earlier. 
So he assumes that our prayer life is being shaped by that anyway. He also wants us to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and then all these other things we need will be given to us, right? He expects us to have this kingdom vision for our prayers so that when we ask and seek and knock, we will be pursuing the kinds of things that kingdom people pursue and not just whatever we feel like at the time. I think... Rather than going down those rabbit holes, the point of what Jesus is saying is more about the one being prayed to than the one who's praying. Right? His focus is on the God who hears our prayers more than it's about us. We find that difficult because we think everything's about us. But I think the point he's trying to communicate here in this whole passage is this is who God is. This is what he's like. Don't get hung up on the one praying, focus your minds on the one being prayed to. What is the Father like? The God who receives your prayers, the God who you go to with asking and searching and knocking, that God, what is He like? Verse 9 and 10 and 11 Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What is your Father like? He's the kind of father whose door is always open. He's the kind of father whose door is always open to his children. He's never inconvenienced by someone seeking for him. I wish I was like this. Sometimes I like to think that I'm like this. But... Compared to God, I'm, I'm evil when it comes to this kind of thing. A couple of weeks ago, I spent the whole week at home. I just cleared my calendar of meetings and I just stayed home and I was studying and, and, and doing some um, planning for the next 12 months. And that was great because I love my little den at home. It's just the front of the house, this tiny little room full of books and a big 100-year-old desk and I just like being there. But... Uh, I would work really, really well up until about 3.30 and then the kids would get home. And from then until dinner time, it was just one interruption after another. And the idea that me closing the door to my den would be some kind of signal to them that I wasn't to be interrupted just doesn't compute at all. I don't have a little do not disturb thing, but it wouldn't make any difference. Like, there could be razor wire all over the door and it wouldn't make any difference. Like, particularly my boy Judah, like, he will just, he will come in for every little thing that comes to his mind. He feels he needs to communicate at that moment. And so the first couple, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, oh, Dilophosaurus spat venom at Quetzalcoatlus again? Oh, okay. Hmm. I'll do that a couple of times, 
by the third, fourth, or fifth time, and it's like, what are you doing? I've told you. What I'm really saying is, Daddy is very important. He's thinking important things. And every time you come in, you interrupt his important thinking. This is not on. It's, it's, I mean, it's pretty easy to smile and, and giggle when someone else's kids interrupts. But when it's your boy and you've been through this a thousand times, it's hard. Children can be irritating. I mean, I'm, I'm the first one to have ever said it, but it's true. Compared to God, when it comes to this kind of thing, I'm just, I'm evil. He's the kind of father who is never perturbed by us breaking in on his concentration. He's never so busy with, you know, like keeping the universe going that he doesn't welcome every one of his children into his den. He does it every time without fail. There's no asterisk on Jesus' teaching here. Like, unless he's really busy or there's a deadline coming up, right? It's just ask and it will be given. Seek, you'll find. Knock, the door will be opened. It will be opened. Without fail, it will be opened to you. This is what our Abba Father is like. Compared to him, I'm evil. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Ask for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil, evil by comparison, like he's not, just being, he's not just being overly harsh with us. He's just saying like next to God the Father, the best of the daddies on earth is evil. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. God is a purveyor of good gifts. And he never runs out of, giving, of, of good gifts to give. And he never, give, he never runs out of like willingness to share them. <laughs> I don't really know what James means when, in James 1 where he says that every good and perfect gift comes down to us from the Father of lights. I don't know what that means, the Father of lights, but it just sounds cool. You can pray to God as the Father of lights, I need something. Father of light, there's no darkness in him. There's no, nothing in him that drives me to say, all right, enough. Barricading the door. There's nothing in him like that. There's, nothing, there's no shifting shadows. He's always good all the time. And the door is always open. Jesus is speaking into a context where there were a great pantheon of gods on offer. The pagan gods were powerful but also mm, arbitrary. They were untrustworthy. They were tricksters. You know, like in the Marvel movies, Loki, it's, it's, he's that kind of God. He's like, he really, that, those gods like to mess with us. I might come to the gods of 
Greece with a genuine need. I have terminal cancer and I need healing and they might hear my prayers and they might just heal me or they might just turn me into a goat. Like it's just, you never know. They're funny like that. They're shifting, right? They're they're unpredictable. They're capricious. Jesus says, God, your father is not like that. He's not unpredictable. He's not a moody dad. He's not having an off day. He's not stressed out with work. He's not arbitrary. He gives good things. You need fish, and he gives you fish, not a snake. You need bread, he gives you bread, not a stone. Hey, the flip side works as well, you know. I hadn't thought about this till this last week, but sometimes you need fish and bread, and you come to him and you ask for a snake and a stone because you're dumb. And you're just praying intently for that snake and that stone, and he's like, well, you just you need fish and bread. I'm not going to give you snake and stone. I'm a good father. C.S. Lewis once wrote in his book, uh, Letters to Malcolm, on prayer, he wrote, uh, if God had answered or given me all the silly things I've asked for in prayer, where now would I be? (laughs) Thank God that he doesn't give us what we want. He doesn't only give us what we want. This is what God the Father is like. Abba, Father, is is a Father who knows us, he didn't just create us and feel obligated to us. He, he loves us. He cherishes us. He knows what's best for us. He gives good things. Here's the bottom line. <laughs> this is what we've learned in the last couple of weeks from Jesus' teaching. God loves birds. And he's wild about flowers but he cherishes his children. He, lo- he loves, he's, he's bang into birds, loves them. If you can't spend half an hour just watching birds, then you're, you're not godly. He loves it. He just watch birds all day, loves them. Cares for them. Makes them all different colors and shapes and sizes and just loves them. Not a single bird falls from a tree apart from his will. He's wild about flowers, loves flowers, bunches of flowers, individual flowers. He makes 10 trillion daisies a day. Loves them, never gets sick of making them. Designs each one by hand, paints them. If you can't sit in a field and just look at flowers, you're not very godly. God loves flowers. But he cherishes his children. He cherishes his children. Remember Matthew 6, was it 26? Yeah, consider the birds of the sky that don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? If that's how he treats birds, what about you? That's a bird, you're his child. Or verse 30 
If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? It's that argument from the lesser to the greater. If God loves birds and he's wild about flowers, how much more does he cherish you, his child? That's what God is like. So you need, you need to build your composite picture of God. If it's the most important thing about you, you need to build this composite picture of God. He's a God who can just sit in a field all day and look at flowers and birds and love them. But he's also a God who absolutely, and yes, almost recklessly, cherishes you, his child. cherishes you. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Are you tempted in this season to think that God is holding out on you, withholding good things from you? Are you tempted to think that he's more like one of those pagan gods who could give you good things but just likes messing with you, teaching you a lesson? I sometimes tell the story about how before we came over to here to Caroline Springs, Renee had said to me, you know, she had a sense that we were going overseas to do ministry. Maybe that's still somewhere down the line. She's felt really convicted about it over the years. Uh, we had accepted this job over in, the, in, in Perth. And, so, um, and she had said to me, I'll follow you anywhere for ministry, but never to the west of Melbourne. And people hear that story, and it's funny. But people sometimes hear it and go, Ah, oh, God taught you a lesson. It's a dangerous thing to say. And I know what they're saying is funny, but it's also a little bit of a skewed picture of who God is, right? Like, oh, you better not say you really don't want something because that's the thing he's going to give you. I don't know, guys. Like, I don't, that doesn't seem to be the picture of God that Jesus is giving us here. He's a father who cherishes us and, and knows what's good for us. But he's not the kind of father who's like, ah, I heard that. You hate Brussels sprouts? You're getting them tonight. Like, he's not... He's not like the pagan gods. He's not Loki. He's not a trickster. He's not like the, the, the god of deism, which many Christians worship today. Yeah, he's the creator, but that's about it. He's at a distance. He spun this thing into motion, and now we've just got to work it out for ourselves. This is what drives so much anxiety about the way of the world right now, because... Yeah, if God was here, he'd fix it, but now it's up to us because he's long gone. It also makes its way into some forms of orthodox Christianity where, yes, God is there, but he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a kind of father who's like, typical of a couple of centuries ago, you know? Children were, were seen, not heard. The nanny takes care of the kids. You see your dad for dinner, maybe. We have this concept of God where he's this distant and and cold force. And that's why you need Mary to hear your prayers. Mary is warm and motherly and nourishing, so she'll, she'll come to you and, and meet you in your need. But the Father, he's, you know, 
He's a dad. It's different. Maybe it's not Mary. Maybe it's just a priest. Maybe you need a priest to hear your prayers and sort of be the intermediary, right? Mediate the, the whole conversation between you and God. Well, both of those are aberrations. Both of those begin with the wrong picture of God. This is why what comes to mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you because everything else flows from it. You don't need to pray to Mary. You don't need a priest to hear your prayers because God is the kind of father whose door is always open. (laughs) And because of Jesus' blood shed in your place, you have free access to him. You've been adopted into his family. It's not even like a school kid principal kind of deal. It's a father-son. It's a father-daughter. This is what our father is like. I read to you at the beginning of that time of confession from Romans 8. Let me read it again, just remind you. Lest you think you can't come to God at any time with anything, any request, any ask. Paul reminds the people of God that those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, right? That's what the lost son was feeling on his way back from his wayward journey. The prodigal son, right? He was, I'll just be a slave. Maybe my father, maybe I can just work in the fields. That's what we can feel like sometimes, particularly when we're burdened by our sinfulness or unworthiness. Maybe, maybe if I could just have this slave-master relationship with God. He says, no, you didn't receive that spirit. You don't have that spirit. That spirit leads you back to fear, to disconnection, to praying to intermediaries. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption. Ha! Adoption! And it's by that spirit that we cry out, Abba, Daddy. I'm, a, I'm out of my time, so let me just say this one last thing. Someone, a good friend of mine who's going to be listening to this, so love you, brother, but a good friend of mine was telling me the other day how Silly it was that, um, I won't get all the details right, but it was something, you know, silly it was that his wife was praying for a parking space or something. And I was like, oh, come on, like, grow up. I disagree. It's true that we should and can and ought to pray for greater things. Salvation of our unsaved loved ones, the renewing of the earth, um, peace in war-torn countries, big prayers are the right kinds of prayers we should pray because God is a big God. But God is also a daddy. And I think maybe what's driving that sense that I can't pray for a parking spot or I can't pray that I'll see a nice flower on my way home. Or I can't, like I can't pray the small prayers. I think what's driving that is an overinflated sense of ourself, right? We think we're grown-ups now. Kids come and say those things to parents. My, like I was saying, my son would just come and say, I, there's a beetle in the front yard. 
And I don't reject that as something dumb because he's eight. If he comes to me at 38 and says, you know, there's a beetle in the front. Um, no, even then, I'll probably like that, actually. I need another example. But you know what I mean? Like, we kind of, well, we grow up out of that. But that's not who we are in relationship to God. We are not grown-ups. <laughs> We're his children. I imagine, given that you're his little child and he's a perfect father, I imagine he'd love to hear your request for a good parking spot. I don't think there is a, small too, a prayer too small for God to hear and receive with generosity. I mean, truth be known, half of my prayers are dumb anyway. Like, if it came down to needing to have really good, grown-up, theologically sound prayers, I think probably God would have just hit the auto-delete on most of mine. Straight to trash. It's a little digression there, but these, the way that we think about our prayers, our theology of prayer, flows out of our vision of who God is. And Jesus wants us to know God is a daddy who cherishes you. The door is always open. Now, let me just mention... So you don't think I forgot it. There is another verse in this passage. It's verse 12, and it's ginormous. It doesn't just belong in this passage. It's the summary verse for this whole section that we've been in the last, I don't know, four or five weeks. Jesus has been talking and focusing in on interpersonal relationships, how his followers should act in the world. Living in the world, how should they behave in the world? What is... What is righteous living in the kingdom of God look like? And his summary verse for all of that, verse 12, therefore, therefore is not just summarizing what he just said, but that whole section. In summary, whatever you want others to do for you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. We call that the golden rule because some emperor at some point had it engraved in gold and in his palace. All right, so that's where that comes from. And people know that terminology because this is a famous shaper of civilizations there's too much to be said about it right now but let me just make one definitive point and that is this other people other teachers other sages people from other religions even i think confucius other teachers other rabbis have said similar things Similar ethical statements about how you should live in the world. Normally theirs, I think all of theirs actually were negatively geared. So um, if you don't want someone to treat you this way, then don't treat them like that. Jesus makes it a positive. However you want people to treat you, then treat them that way, which is a whole different ballgame as well. But I'm just saying it's not a bolt out of the blue. But there is one very important difference about Jesus' ethic against everyone else's and that is this he's not just confucius telling you there that you should live this way and keep trying until you get it he's not just saying keep grinding until you reach some sort of level of enlightenment or real self-realization he is god telling you that this is the way to live and then he gives you his spirit to empower you to actually do it so that you're not just white knuckling every day trying to treat people how they should treat you how you want them to treat you 
but he is by his spirit enabling you, empowering you to do it. Summarized in this poem that I've quoted to you 11 times, all right? Burridge, Berridge, John Berridge. He says um, a little poem on the difference between law, like Confucius telling you you should live this way, and Jesus giving you his spirit. Run, John, and work, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Sweden news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. All right? Treating people how you want them to treat you requires you to fly. Not just run or walk or grind or try harder, but fly. The good news is that the gospel gives you the wings to do it. That's all I can say. So let us pray. We come to a God who loves to hear us, whose door is always open. And so, Father, Abba, Daddy, we thank you for speaking to us in your word. We thank you for the sublime teaching of your Son. And we pray that we might have the right picture of you in our minds, not an aberration driven by our brokenness, our our, um, bad experiences, false theologies, but a true picture of who you are, a loving Father whose door is always open, a creator and a sustainer who cherishes us, doesn't look down on us, isn't inconvenienced by us. To you, Abba, we ask for power by your Holy Spirit to live out the ethic of Jesus, that we would treat others the way that we want to be treated and so fulfill the law and the prophets. Give us wings to fly. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.